You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here on this fine Tuesday, June 18th. And we are really coming up on the halftime show of 2019. It's unbelievable. It's almost July. Where has this year gone? We have been so busy covering the border issue. It's like one month rolls into another. I can't, I can't believe it's been well, it's five months since my anniversary, since we went away. Um, man, has this year flown by. But I will tell you guys, I am in a good mood today for once. <laughs> okay, so I'm um, feeling a little giddy. Not that I want to let my guard down. Not that I think we're well on our way to solving our sovereignty problem. But I feel like we got a sense of purpose. I feel like our voice is getting out there. I think it's undeniable. And it's it's really thanks to you, the listeners, that support this show, that make it impactful. If you guys didn't listen, I'd just be talking to the wall in my office all day. So for the first time, it feels like I'm not talking to the wall. We got personnel in place. We clearly have the president pressured. He He feels the need to constantly go on Twitter and reinforce his focus on this issue. Again, not that Twitter is an outcome, but for a while, he wasn't even talking about this. So there are some good signs. We're at the cusp of something good. We just got to drive it home. We got to unleash the dogs. We got to close the loop. Now is precisely the time to double down on our focus to double down on our focus. That's what we need to do. Um, you know, between Governor Abbott, the president, some of his personnel choices, the pressure on Mexico to a certain extent, in certain ways, we're on the cusp of making progress. But if we walk away, nothing will change at this point. Got to drive it home. Got to drive it home quick. One of the interesting things I found was that when you actually make this local, it really has its impact. A lot of things I do, I think, are going to land punches and they don't. And then something, you know, when I bring up certain pieces of news that I don't think are necessarily that remarkable, they wind up really becoming very impactful. And one of the most successful things we've done is do our interviews with that Uvalde mayor, Don McLaughlin. And now everyone wants to get a hold of him. I've never had this in my entire career. Certainly everyone in, in, in our network is trying to get a hold of him now. Everyone's like, Daniel, can you give me his, uh, okay, who, who, who in his office do I reach out to? And I start laughing, like, what office? The guy earns $500 a month from that job. You know, just call him directly. But Tucker had him on. Drudge had our article up yesterday about another local mayor we spoke about from Del Rio. I didn't actually interview him, but I had a video of him talking about it. It was given to me by uh, Mayor McLaughlin. So it's very interesting that when you actually bring the impact back to local communities, it really seems to ramp up the pressure. Now, we're recording before this, but later today, Chip Roy is going to have a press conference with about 10 House members. Dan McLaughlin is, Don McLaughlin is going to be there. And it's really starting to put the pressure on Texas officials. You saw yesterday Greg Abbott put out that, hey, we're going to put back our air and, and sea assets or, or river assets. We're probably going to have Jason Jones on tomorrow to give us an update. It's real pitful what's going on there. They pulled out all the Texas assets. Now, I'm not going to trust his tweet, but again, the fact that he felt the need to say, oh, we're going to ramp up resources, 
it doesn't mean we should run away and say we won. It means what we're doing is working. Now let's double down and unleash the dogs of immigration enforcement. Now's our time. Now's our moment. Now's our moment to reverse this with interest. Let's reverse the entire flow, get them deported, and then make progress to go forwards from what we didn't even have before Trump, let alone erase all the areas of policy where we went backwards. So it's good news that at least the governor is talking about deploying assets. And look, you know, I I tweeted at Governor Abbott when he said that. I said, thanks for doing that. But um, take it to the next level. Turn them back over the river. A state has that authority to do that. Scalia will tell you, you have that authority. But this is the biggest thing, the most important thing when you're engaged in political battle and you want to train fire or focus on a certain issue. So the first job is to get the focus. The second job is to ensure that the fire is trained precisely where it needs to be. Because the worst thing is when the other side jujitsus our our energy into something that is not helpful or counterintuitive. So obviously, our first goal is to make sure that the executive policy changes are put into place. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Don't, don't tell me Congress or this or that, things that are never going to happen. Pink unicorns are going to fly. And as we said, if you don't enforce current law, if you don't unleash the dogs of existing immigration enforcement, then there's nothing really you can do executive um, through Congress that's going to be any better. So that's first of all. But also, as the Senate takes up this border funding bill, In committee tomorrow, Senate Appropriations Committee, next week, McConnell's promising to bring it to the floor. We have to expose that bill. That bill is nothing but handing money to illegal aliens. It's a sleight of hand. Be very careful. It's not border funding. It's funding. It's humanitarian funding for illegals. Most of the funding doesn't even go to DHS. It goes to Health and Human Services to literally further the criminal conspiracy of illegal alien families paying the cartels to smuggle in their other illegal relatives who are minors or lie about being minors, and we're going to pay for it. The rest of the DHS funding is mainly for um, humanity, you know, just diapers and things like that. What we need to be very clear are resources to deport, deport, deport. That's what we need. But again, we're at the cusp of good news. So let's go through it. So number one, the governor is clearly getting pressure to redeploy Texas DPS and the National Guard. Okay, that's that's something. Number two, you know, we're seeing that Mexico was pressured into acting. Now, as we said before, they're very limited in the impact they could have. A lot of people are asking me, well, Daniel, you said you know it wasn't going to help. They're now saying, Mexican officials are saying numbers could go down by 20-30%. What's the truth? Okay, well, numbers aren't going down by 20-30%. You have to understand there's, there's, a, there's another sleight of hand going on here. Whenever you have any trajectory, almost in anything, whether it's a stock market, whether it's spending numbers, whether it's border numbers, rarely do things go in a linear line straight up with no oscillation. There's a difference between bending a trajectory and oscillation where, you know, it's kind of like the up and down squiggly lines. Not every day is, and every week and every month, are the numbers going to be higher than the previous month. I mean, it was in in the fall, we were pulling our hair out at the number of family units coming. They're like, January, could you believe it? February, unchartered. March, beyond broken, beyond an emergency. April, we can't even fathom it. 
And then it was in May, it was like we lost adjectives in the, ling- in the English language to describe what was going on. So towards the end of May, we were at the highest numbers imaginable. Right now, according to the data I see, now th- even this is a little old, it's like six days old, but the week ending June 12th, meaning basically the second week in June over the first week in June, so rather than 20,000 apprehensions in Texas, it's about 18,000 that week. Okay? But before you go around and say, oh, a 10% drop, remember that's from the worst week ever. 18,000 is is well within roughly what we had every other month, every other week in, in April and most of May. So, you know, you got to put that in perspective. It, it's not steep enough, and it's coming off only the top peak. There's one thing if we went back to January. or like, okay, so maybe there's something doing there. But th- these, these are basically just a few weeks ago numbers, even two, three weeks ago. So... It could be nothing more than just an oscillation in the trend. I mean, it's just there's a limit to how many people, even if you don't have any enforcement, how many could get through the pipeline and how many are coming. Moreover, you do have the heat wave in a lot of parts of Texas taking over. So that does tend to historically, it is uh, slowing things down a little bit. So let's not get carried away here. But yes, I mean, there is a bigger perception out there that we're going to start to enforce it. But that happened a couple other times and it fell flat. Now's the time to follow up with it. So there's other news here that I wanted to get to. Um, other important news. And, and look, slowly the president is starting to implement my ideas. But again... You gotta unleash the dogs. You gotta do A, B, and C. Sometimes if you only do one, it's not like, okay, well, it's better than nothing. If you don't have the other elements mixed in with it, it doesn't succeed. And 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 the core thing of what we need to do is understand that this is a military issue. This is a national defense issue. This is a warfare issue with the cartels. Migration is their weapon of war or one of their weapons. And it's got to be shut down, deter, defend, demagnetize, secure a perimeter. Don't investigate, don't apprehend, don't talk about humanitarian stuff. Hold the line, operation hold the line. That's what they need to call it, in my view, because that in itself will focus the mentality. Hold the line, don't let anything in, done, turn back everyone. So one of the things I brought up throughout the last number of months, as this, but to be very clear, I brought this up as a secondary approach to an 1182F shutdown. Really, we have no requirement to let anyone in if the president denies entry. You don't have to adjudicate anything quickly, swiftly, or not at all. You turn them back. If they come in, they're inadmissible. You can voluntar- is, You could hold them until you voluntarily depart. But we will not, we will not process you. But nonetheless, as a secondary point, we said at least hold them in tent cities, not the single adults. Those you should get rid of right away. Now I want to get to that in a couple moments, because we're not getting rid of even a lot of single adults. But the family units specifically, you should target the first ones coming in today, first in. First out, or sorry, last in, first out, LIFO. And you put the and you put the judges right in there. Order them to deny all claims. Again, with you know, obviously, ones that have exigent circumstances that there really is asylum. Asylum, but I'm telling you that it it it's an antiquated concept. The ones that really are, they just don't come to our border. We bring them in. It just doesn't work that way. So turn them all down and then immediately have the judge deny, the immigration judge deny their claim and then do this right at an Air Force base, which you do have at our border, and have 
the AC-130s transport them back right away, airlifts. Boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. That's that again. That's the secondary thing to a shutoff. That's option number two, or it could be used to also buttress the shutoff. So this is a CNN article. Trump admin considers temporary courts along the southern border. The Trump administration is considering building temporary courts along the southern border as part of an effort to expand its policy of returning some asylum seekers to Mexico for the duration of their immigration proceedings, according to two administration officials. The U.S. recently struck an agreement with Mexico that includes expanding the policy, which the administration argues serves as a deterrent since it keeps migrants waiting in Mexico instead of within the U.S. Site assessments have been completed for almost all the ports of entry to determine where such temporary immigration courts described by sources as soft-sided would be needed, according to the administration official. The facilities could be used to conduct hearings via video teleconference, which has previously been used by immigration courts elsewhere in the country. Now, um, let's see where this is. The Justice Department's Executive Office of Immigration Review referred questions about the so-called Migrant Protection Protocols Program to the Department of Homeland Security. DHS official confirmed that the temporary structures are being considered, adding that the crisis has strained the immigration courts along the border. Now, again... um, Well, let me just finish this. One of the locations actively working toward implementing the program is the Rio Grande Valley region in Texas, the busiest sector for arrests. Um... Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is, again, another vague maybe considering. They need to stop considering and they need to start doing. They need to start doing. And, again, the mentality has to be more of a mindset of holding the line, not adjudicating your way out of, out of an invasion. Now, I don't mind this as a secondary backstop to an 1182F shutoff. But again, with the mindset that we're getting them out of here, not just more f- efficient version of doing what we're doing now. So we have to see if that's going to land. But again, I, I want to give you guys a little bit of hope that our voice is being, it's at least being heard. Now, what they do with that, we have to make sure they don't make an end run around us and fool us, and they actually do something enduring. You know, I want to read to you another article. This is from the Brownsville local uh, NBC affiliate. Gang members and immigrants with extensive criminal records continue making their way across our border. With over 8,000 undocumented immigrants currently in custody in the Rio Grande Valley sector, Border Patrol agents say they continue encountering individuals with ties to notorious gangs. Marcelino Medina, supervisory Border Patrol agent, said, we do, we do see a large number of family units and unaccompanied children that are coming through this area, and often at times we do identify individuals in those groups as criminal aliens and gang members. The way to identify them? Traditionally, we do identify a lot of gang members through tattoos and interviews. We also identify gang members, and criminal aliens through running their biometrics in our databases. A lot of times, they have committed crimes in the United States which show up after we run their fingerprints in our system, said Agent Medina. A man attempting to enter the U.S. with his four-year-old son was arrested after records showed he was previously arrested and convicted for sexual battery in Oakland, California. In another incident, agents arrested a Mexican national previously arrested for kidnapping and rape in Pennsylvania. Border Patrol RGV Sector Chief Rodolfo Carish said there's also another agreement on criminal aliens mostly applies to ICE. If a person who is a criminal alien in their country is identified and that country is not willing to take them back, we're forced to release. A local resident said he lives in fear of the potential danger this puts on his family and in communities need more security. Border Patrol says the Sebuska initiative has proven to be successful in capturing criminals on both sides of the border. Since the initiative began, more than half of the criminals on the list have been arrested. That's a list of criminal aliens that they targeted. Now, a couple things here. Notice they say, well, we have no choice but to release them if their country doesn't take them back. 
We don't need to play footsies with the country taking them back. Deny them entry. Hold the line on that river with boats and helicopters and bring them, turn them back. Turn them back. So you don't have to worry about that issue. But moreover, haven't you noticed they say a lot of times we spoke about criminal aliens coming in not with the family units, that they're, you know, use, while the family units are used as decoys, they get in surreptitiously. But some of them themselves are coming in with kids. Now, ask yourself this question. Why in the world, you know, most of these people, smugglers, so once in a while you'll find a, a dumb one, but they're not dumb. What they do is pretty logical. Why in the world would you think you could come in with a kid if you know they're going to pull up your criminal record and they see not only do you have a criminal record in your home country, you've already had a criminal record in this country and you've already been deported. That's a kiss of death, right? Well, what that demonstrates is that for everyone that we do catch and we do prosecute or deport, Clearly, there are those that we let straight in and the word is getting out. Clearly, they think there is a chance that even if they come in and surrender and the Border Patrol agent sees their criminal record, we're not going to prosecute them and we're going to wind up letting them go, as the article said. Again, imagine if the president said, you know, gave, gave a, was given a briefing on this and he, and he told um, the American people, we are letting go rapists in this country. This has got to stop. We don't know who these people are. Therefore, we're turning back everyone until this ends. What did I tell you yesterday? What did I tell you? I said that the, the, the collateral cost from the left and the media to doing an 1182F shutoff is a fraction of, of what you're incurring from them now by ironically giving the left everything they want and letting in a million illegals. What did I tell you? Alexandria Cortez is all over the news talking about how Trump is running concentration camps. Obviously, it's, 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 it's a scandalous accusation. It's disgusting. By the way, just as an aside, it's interesting. Everyone's a Nazi nowadays, except the very people calling everyone a Nazi are also the people that are besmirching the reputation of our military in World War II. It's a whole trend now for shooting Nazi prison guards when they captured Dachau and some of these, uh, you know, concentration camps. So just, I just, you know, now that we're on the issue of concentration camps, when you actually have them, they're opposed to going after them. So whatever. But anyway, this is the point. The president is incurring so much liability. He's taking so much heat. The best way is not to run the so-called concentration camps. Now, the last time I checked in concentration camps, they don't get to complain about the temperature of the burritos. But anyway, in this case, just don't let them in. Let them bottle up on the Mexican border. You know, it's funny. These Mexican officials, I just tweeted at a guy. Um, Washington Post was putting this out. This guy, Enrique Acevedo, he's the news anchor for Univision. And he's like, this country, meaning Mexico, isn't ready. Tijuana, Nogales, Reynosa, Juarez, the same thing is happening here at the south border in places like Tapachula, Mexico. They don't have the capacity to deal with what is coming. A perfect humanitarian storm. And we do? Hey, buddy. We let in over 10 million of your illegals the last number of years from Mexico. So you know what? Now you you're gonna take one for the team. For the now it's your responsibility to deal with the Central Americans. We dealt with you, and we're still dealing with Mexican Mexicans coming over. Single adults are coming over. So you know what? Now maybe it's time for you to take one for the team. But again, the the thing is, it's not even an equal proposition with bottling them up in Mexico versus the U.S. Because if you bottle them up in Mexico, it's not gonna last too long because they don't want to go to Mexico, so they'll just stop coming. Whereas if you let them in here, they're going to keep coming to both countries. That's the important thing. It's not a matter of, oh, Mexico, you guys deal with it and we don't deal with it. It's that they don't want to go to Mexico. So once you just bottle them up there, but when I say bottle them up, I don't mean in a return to Mexico policy that's gradual. I mean, hold the line. 
I don't care if there's an agreement from Mexico or not. We are not letting them in. So that's the story. That's what the president needs to do. The president needs to unleash Homan. First thing is, make Homan borders are. Now, I could tell you the big issue right now with Homan is, he has the job if he wants it. The big question is, what is the job? And I think that's what Homan is holding out for, to say, look, I need to be in charge. Certainly over McAleenan, but really over, over the Secretary of Defense. We need military assets. We need to direct the military. I'm hearing that we're not even deporting a lot of the single adults. And a lot of them are getting very belligerent and are attacking agents. I don't know. I, I cannot tell you definitively because I don't have the information on you know, what's the deal? Does ICE not have enough planes, not enough logistics? But the strong arming of, of um, Guatemala and Honduras, I said this before, should not be secure your border for us. You know, yesterday it was announced they're suspending um, aid to Central America indefinitely until they se- take steps to secure the border. I agree with that, but I would just modify it a little bit that I would just say you will cooperate with airlifts. So stop having this whole elongated process. No. Load them up in AC-130s. Use them not for Somalia and Niger. Use them for here and get them out of here. Get the military involved if ICE doesn't have... Stop waiting for commercial airliners. It's really annoying. Get the military involved in this. Because what I don't understand is they say that they're going to start targeting doing what I was the first one to put out. I put out the data from my our buddies at Immigration Reform Law Institute. Early, they got the, um, the FOIA information on the number of Central American families that haven't been deported, even though they have final deportation orders. By the way, they, they shouldn't need it if you do expedited removal. You don't need an immigration judge. But these are ones that we even went through that process stupidly. So the good news is, you know, this is the headline on Drudge that they're finally going to do it. Now, I know many of you are like, yeah, right, Daniel. They keep saying they're going to do it. I I, I would be um, skeptical too, but I know Morgan is very committed to that. And I, I believe he has won out over McAleenan on this issue. But the question is, where are they going to get the resources to do that? If you're telling me you don't even have the resources to get rid of the ones right at the border, the single adults. So I don't know. But again, this brings us back to the border fight. The standalone supplemental they're going to vote on, which won't go anywhere. And then the budget bill in September. Mainly, the border issue is a policy issue. We need to enforce current law. It's not a funding issue. But to the extent it's a funding issue, we need more more than for Border Patrol. We need for ICE. We need deportations. Deport. That's where the funding needs to go into. Deportations. Not humanitarian aid. Because again, the best way to take care of the humanitarian problem, which, by the way, we must recognize is and should be secondary to the American humanitarian problem, the security problem for Americans. But the way you solve that is by dissuading them from coming and then you don't have it. If you just throw more money at better catch and release, you're going to incentivize more to come and you're going to have more humanitarian problems. So that's what they need to do. It needs to go more into that. And then, of course, it needs to be be Operation Hold the Line. It needs to be training border agents more in military tactics. It needs to be defense funding. Boats, planes, planes for deportations, planes for surveillance. And holding the line at the line of scrimmage. Deter, defend, demagnetize. We'll link to it in show notes. It's my old plan. I have more to add to it, and maybe we will. Maybe I'll put out something on Operation Hold the Line. But that is still the best plan out there. You've got to hold it at the line of scrimmage, which I'm telling you, on boats, 
in the river at Texas, which is where 80% of them are coming in. Because again, just so you understand the geography, the easiest route for smuggling is through Texas. The harder routes are farther west, just infrastructure-wise and just in terms of distance. So the first option is always going to be Texas. We need to at least secure the river. And then, folks, in addition to this supplemental funding, remember I, I, I told you, next to annual appropriation bills, the next best leverage is another must-pass bill that both parties feel they need to get passed but doesn't involve a government shutdown or the risk of a government shutdown. And you know, one of those was the disaster aid bill, which they totally blew through. But another one is the NDAA, the Annual Defense Authorization Bill. Despite the fact that Congress does almost nothing, they continue to pass that every year. That is something they ultimately do pass. So they're considering the fiscal um the fiscal uh 2020 bill and i'm telling you folks this is where the leverage is let me first before we get to the border i say this every year when the ndaa comes up for a vote there's two steps in the defense funding process. There's the NDAA, the Defense Authorization Bill, and then there's the Annual Defense Appropriation Bill. You first authorize. The first one is about policy, not funding. The second one should be about funding. But instead, they make both about funding. It's all about dollars and cents, how much money we're going to spend on the military. But really, what we need to be doing is you first assess our foreign policy, our national defense, our threat doctrine. The threat doctrine of our enemies. Who are our enemies? Where do we need conventional forces? Where do we need unconventional forces? And you would prioritize defense. And if you were to do that properly, you would ask yourself, who threatens us most? And it's really Iran overseas. But the first thing is our own border. And you would start viewing our border and the cartels as... Not a DHS issue, but a DOD issue. This is where the Republicans have the leverage to get up there in the Senate and say, wait a minute. We're voting on a defense authorization bill. We're talking about the needs for securing Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and certainly Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq and Niger and Somalia and Yemen. Shouldn't we first talk about our border? Shouldn't the border be the biggest priority in the NDAA? And if McConnell were smart, he would authorize military funding for the border. Not just the wall, but for using the Air Force bases for deportations, tent cities, training Border Patrol and military tactics, and having the Border Patrol and having the military themselves deploy with better rules of engagement, because again, that's authorization. You're authorizing. It's policy. And then we could talk about funding. The reason why our national defense is a joke is because we don't have a real debate over the NDAA. It's just a funding issue. We need a debate over policy, not funding policy and this is really where deter defend demagnetize comes in hold the perimeter hold the line is it too hard to get up there and say for the president to say not one inch of our territory should be unsecure that you shouldn't have cartels operating on our side of the border that Mexico must sacrifice their non-existent sovereignty when anyway the cartels control it and anyway we'd be doing them a favor rather than us sacrificing 20 miles, often even more, into our soil where cartels have operational control. We're going to talk about that more tomorrow with Jason Jones. It's pretty unbelievable. The surveillance they have 
with their, their cartel people, often U.S. citizens, living on our side of the border. So um, that's the issue. Let's get our priorities straight. But either way, the key element here is that conservatives need to have a voice. We need to pressure the president to act. We need to pressure the president to fulfill his campaign promises because if we don't direct him, nobody else will. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. And that's the thing. You're going to see this on every issue. (laughs) The president has some good intuition, will halfway do it, but then the other halfway kind of undermine it, be all over the place, uh, all over the place on messaging, on policy. Then Republicans are even worse than he is. And then they're caught with this funny dynamic where they're in power and they have control of everything. So they get blamed of every, uh, you know, for everything. And then they also get blamed for things that they don't do, but signal they're going to do, but do halfway or don't do. Again, the worst position in any battle is to be advancing haphazardly without any cover, without any retreat, but without any advance. Just kind of stalled out. You're not behind defensive lines or you're not on attack, which in itself is a defensive mechanism. And as I mentioned yesterday, this is what killed Republicans on health care. I want to get to that in a minute, actually, because they're about to do the, go through the same problem on health care. But just first, um, just to wrap things up on the border here, I want to do a whole show on this in general. But we have Jim Crow in America against the American citizen. Americans cannot have their laws enforced. Americans cannot sue and get standing in court or law enforcement, local officials when they're screwed. But local officials, if they want to sue for more illegal immigration, they can get standing. This is from the monitor.com. Migrants suing Border Patrol attorneys seek release of seven plaintiffs. Attorneys representing seven migrants from Central America allege U.S. Customs and Border Protection is holding them in overcrowded facilities while denying them access to legal counsel. The lawsuit targets several Department of Homeland Security officials and seeks the immediate release of the migrants on bond. Now, I'm just telling you folks, you might laugh at these lawsuits, but they go through. More often than not, they went out. The, The attorneys are seeking a federal judge to issue an injunction preventing Border Patrol from holding anyone longer than 72 hours. Anyone, anyone longer than 72 hours. What if they get it? Will Trump just do it? We'll find out. But again, there's no lukewarm hell on this issue. Our voice is being heard. That's the important thing. But we got to keep it up. You know, I just told my wife the same thing. We were having an issue in, in our school where... Just the last couple weeks of school, they just checked out. I mean, the teachers maybe just happened to be the ones my kids had, but they just checked out. No homework, no work. I mean, they literally could have missed the last few weeks of school, and they they wouldn't have missed anything. And I understand people, well, you want to have fun with the kids the last couple of days, but this was already, you know, the whole month of, the whole final month. And what I was telling my wife is I said, I know we don't like to call up and complain, but I'm not even trying to complain. I just want to inform the administration. Like, do you understand that this is what's happening? Are you okay with that? Because, you know, most parents nowadays just want their kids to be happy. So I doubt they're going to complain that their kids don't have enough work. You know, they're not going to do that. You're never going to hear complaints, so they're not going to react to it. It's the same thing. Whether it's welfare, healthcare, illegal immigration, it's always the special interest, the give me the handouts. Nobody is is speaking for the just run-of-the-mill American citizen that just wants nothing but the basic protection that government is responsible to accord them. Which brings me to the next issue, healthcare. 
As you know, healthcare is the number two issue behind immigration. And it's very eerie that just like where I believe we're headed on immigration, Trump and Republicans got the worst of all worlds by aggressively saying that they're going to get rid of or signaling that they might get rid of the handouts, but then didn't get rid of it and didn't get rid of the regs and didn't get rid of most of Obamacare. So they own the status quo. They own all the results of left-wing health care, but they now own it under their own banner. So nobody is happy. Nobody likes the status quo in health care. We should be militating against the status quo, yet we own the status quo. Now, like every other issue, Trump deserves blame for joining with Republicans in this whole pre-existing condition stupid messaging. But at the same time, at least he is trying of recent, some of you might have seen, HHS under Azar, they are trying to deal with some core healthcare issues. Price transparency, they're talking about. Now, they have to do it in the right way, but at least they they understand the importance of the issue, and they're trying to get to it. Azar is, is pretty decent relative to some of the other cabinet secretaries. Recently, they expanded HRAs for small businesses. doesn't affect that many people. But they need a narrative on healthcare. They badly need a narrative on healthcare. But the only narrative we have on healthcare is, oh, let's take the most extreme thing from AOC and talk about that, oh, you know, Medicare for all. But then meanwhile, they agree and own everything right up to the line of Medicare for all. And it's bad policy, bad politics. Where are the Republicans militating against what that Obamacare has destroyed private practice in America. It's created monopolies for healthcare um, administrators. See, this is where I believe Tucker Carlson is wrong. I think he's brought a lot of good stuff to the debate, but he takes this populism too far and he says, well, on fiscal issues, Bill, basically it's just become like Elizabeth Warren. No, true free market capitalism, not the crap that Republicans spew. Actually, if you understand it, it's the most populist thing around. You literally are giving big business control of health care. But they don't know how to talk about this. There's an article in the Hill.com in response to some of what HHS is doing. Trump's healthcare focus puts GOP on edge. President Trump has put the issue of health care back on the political front burner, providing ammunition to Democrats and worrying Republicans who think a new battle over Obamacare will hurt their party in next year's elections. Senate Republicans defending 22 seats next year, by the way, most of them are in red states, thought they had put Obamacare be- repeal behind them. <laughs> I love that language. When they told Trump earlier this year that they have no intention of acting on a health care overhaul before the election. But Trump threw the issue back at them in an interview with ABC News that aired Sunday, saying his administration will will unveil, quote, something terrific to overhaul the nation's healthcare system in a month. He argued that action is needed because Obamacare has been a disaster. Republican lawmakers have little idea of what to expect and say there hasn't been communication from the administration on the issue. All the members of Congress thought it had subsided and hope that it continues to be subsided, one senior GOP aide said. We don't actually agree with each other on what replacement should be, which means we don't have a replacement Republicans can unite around. That's a political gift for Democrats. Senate Majority Leader McConnell offered a cautious take, stating of a Trump in an interview with Fox News that we're looking forward to seeking what he's going to recommend. To seeing what he's going to recommend. McConnell added that there's no chance Congress will act on anything Trump proposes until next year's elections. The problem is the Senate and the House is the problem problem in the Senate and the House is the Democrats control the House. So we can't pass what we'd like to do. Gee, you couldn't do it when Republicans controlled the House. And then of course McConnell has told colleagues he wants to play offense by making 2020 about Medicare for all and single payer. See, this is the game. Agree and champion everything, champion Obamacare, but we don't want the next thing. That's not offense. That's not offense, my friends. 
So this is where, again, it's frustrating. There's no vision or focus from conservative media. The president has it partially good, but we can't capitalize because we don't have a focused conservative movement. And then you have Republicans that are off the wall. And it's the worst of all things. It's the worst of all avenues. It is so frustrating. Oh, man. You know, a month before the midterm elections, I wrote an article October 3rd, 2018. Let me... Remind you of it. Republicans have a deadly pre-existing condition. It will cost them in November. Ignorance on healthcare policy is the pre-existing condition of both political parties. For the past four election cycles, Republicans lied to us about repealing Obamacare and finally allowing a market-based system built on competition to flourish. Now they are officially running in November on the same platform as Democrats on healthcare, the defining economic and fiscal issue of our time. While the GOP base is captivated by the Kavanaugh saga, Saga, that was back then. And the spectacle of GOP leaders fighting on this one issue, we have forgotten about the biggest betrayal of all, Obamacare. Republicans not only lied to us about repealing Obamacare when they controlled all three branches, they have now championed the core elements of the law, thereby making the entire premise of Obamacare a consensus. By seeding the entire narrative on healthcare, they have committed the ultimate malpractice by exonerating the left from blame for hurting consumers. Quite a feat indeed. There is a pre-existing condition plaguing committee chairmen and leaders of both parties who preach government-run health care. That condition is grave ignorance of how we got to this point with such a dysfunctional health care system. We are told by the chief intellectuals and policy experts that we must destroy health care in the medical insurance market for everyone because of those with pre-existing conditions. But the entire discussion over repealing Obamacare hinges on one reality that everybody refuses to discuss. I'm often asked, what is the conservative solution to pre-existing conditions? While there are many solutions put forth, and then I put in in parentheses some of my podcasts and previous articles, we fail to ask the first question. Why do we have a problem with pre-existing conditions and access to healthcare in the first place? Once we answer that question, the solutions, at least for future generations, will be self-evident. The first thing is to recognize that the world is not a utopia, And there will be a certain percentage of people who are chronically ill and in need of costly treatment that can't be provided exclusively through the traditional insurance market. However, the best way to deal with pre-existing conditions is to isolate and minimize the problem, that is to lower the cost of health care itself, minimize the problem, and to deal with the chronically ill separately rather than increasing insurance rates on everyone, isolate. The only way to do that is by empowering the consumer to control his own health care and risk-pulling decisions rather than empowering a government insurance cartel to price-fix us all into oblivion. Ask yourself the following questions. Why is it that a young adult or even a parent on behalf of an unborn child cannot purchase a general casualty insurance plan similar to life insurance that would cover catastrophic medical needs if they arise in the form of indemnity indemnity payments? The plan would be guaranteed renewable as long as it's locked in before the individual gets sick, when the insurance is still actuarially sound. Or how about health status insurance? This is Professor John Cochran's idea for purchasing an insurance of status that would pay the difference in new premiums if the policyholder develops a serious chronic illness. One more question. Why do we need to insure against so many routine contingencies that don't even require rocket science to treat? Why are the charges for so many commonplace medical services and products so prohibitive over and beyond the market demand? The answer to all these questions is that though is that through a series of government actions beginning in the 50s and 60s, the government both regulated and subsidized market forces out of the healthcare industry. The medical insurance cartel has been empowered through subsidies, the tax code, Medicare, Medicaid, and price-fixing laws to have a monopoly on the delivery of care, obfuscate all price transparency, and prevent both the consumer from enjoying any innovative competition and providers from offering direct care or other forms of insurance, such as general casualty insurance or health-sharing associations. Through the health insurance tax exclusion for employers, the government put $270 billion per year into the pockets of the insurance cartel. The employer tax exemption did a number of things aside from reducing wages. It put individuals at a disadvantage for purchasing insurance compared to employment groups, 
It exacerbated the pre-existing condition problem by tying people to specific jobs and specific states for coverage. It made insurance not just a catastrophic catastrophic backstop, but the primary manager and price fixer of all healthcare, thereby jacking up the price of healthcare on all services that shouldn't even need insurance. Coupled with the growth of Medicare and Medicaid, Obamacare and other endless subsidies geared exclusively toward the traditional concept of insurance rather than alternatives, the money in healthcare is all with the cartel, which largely manages the government programs instead of the consumer being king. Worse, through their government-granted monopoly, they create hold-harmless clauses and contracts with providers that prevent doctors from offering life-saving treatments to those willing to pay out of pocket unless they are covered by the cartel. With this brief history lesson in mind, it's no mystery why our national expenditures on healthcare have popped from $27 billion in 1960 to over $3.3 trillion today. Assuming healthcare would rise at the same rate as the rest of the economy, that number would be under $250 billion today. The amalgamation of all these factors is why, in some ways, our system of venture socialism, government control funneled through a phony private sector, is worse than even European socialism in terms of certain outcomes. Yet Republicans have wrongly taken ownership of the status quo rather than pinning this tail on the donkeys. I read that word for word because I just felt that that was an important column as healthcare heats up again and Trump tries to do some things and Republicans run away and like, no, no, we don't want to talk other than say AOC is going to have single payer. This is the shtick that they play on every issue. What the Democrats did until now becomes the new normal. Republicans agree with it, even defend it, even own it, but just don't do the next thing. This is not what offense looks like. That is not what it looks like. And it's just a shame that the president is willing to do more than Republicans are willing to do. Um, And look, I give him credit. These two issues, immigration is the linchpin to our society. The courts are the linchpin to the system of government, meaning fixing judicial supremacy. And healthcare is the linchpin, really, to the economy and freedom and many other things. Those are the big issues. And we don't have a narrative from Republicans. We just don't. It's very sad. It's really sad. They're completely lost at sea on this issue. There's so many issues we could talk about. Rural hospitals going out of business. The monopoly. How not-for-profit hospitals get to earn tons of profit, not pay taxes. Put out ads. Selling, you know, Medicaid. Boxing out competition. They act as if they're non-profit stewards of the state, but there's no price transparency. There's a lot Republicans can run on if they actually cared. But they don't. This is all a game. It's just a way of weathering the storm to the next election, to the next election, to the next election. You know, one of the things I really am terrified about, I really don't look forward to, is I believe it's next Wednesday and Thursday night are the first Democrat presidential debates. Now, I couldn't give a darn about them. Republican, see, conservative, so-called conservative commentators, they could spend two years of GOP control when they you could actually influence their outcome, and you don't care. But the minute, oh, there's something about Democrats, I love talking about Democrats. Even though you're not going to influence their primary, nor should you care. The only thing we should care, see, a lot of people are going to point out how radical they are and all the radical things they say, but they're missing the point. Use that to to forge your own path and show a bold contrast. But instead, it actually hurts us because when they highlight the radicalism, they agree to everything short of the most radical element of the Democrats at any given moment until the next couple of years when they agree to the previous radical thing and are now litigating against the new radical thing. Oh, you see what they said? They want socialism. Well, you're agreeing to socialism. 
How do you think we got to where we are when you said, oh, Obamacare is terrible. We can't let that go through. We're going to repeal it. How much longer longer are we gonna are, are, are we gonna fall for this? It's really not that hard. It really isn't. Man, are these guys frustrating. Frustrating as anything. Anyway, just to close with the border, move it back to the border. So we have the NDAA, the defense authorization bill. Some of you maybe should call Cruz's office and say, are you submitting amendments on the border to the NDAA? And if they say, well, this is a defense bill, well, what bigger defense than our border? We're going to watch what Greg Abbott is doing. We're going to watch what happens with these personnel changes, what happens with the borders are with Homan. We're going to watch um, what goes on with this stupid spending bill. See, there's a lot of opportunities to focus on. I'm just a one-man show. Imagine if all these people would realize the leverage points they have. God is our witness here that every single budget bill that was put forth while Republicans controlled all three branches, we focused on weeks before strategy, messaging, what should have happened. But everyone was just focused on the Democrats. See, even when Republicans are in charge, it's the Democrats. But ironically, they're the ones empowering the Democrats. Got to keep our focus. One other just, I mean, there's a number of important stories I wanted to get to. We're going to have to save for later this week. There's one story I wanted to point out. It's just driving me nuts with um, stuff that ICE is doing. I really wish, I, I hope this could change. But ICE put out a press release, Homeland Security Investigations, this is HSI-led effort to reduce the production sale of counterfeit NBA Merchandise, as in National Basketball Association. The 2019 NBA Finals events and games played in the Bay Area filled Golden State Warriors and Toronto Raptors fans with much excitement, creating a desire among many of them to commemorate their experiences with the purchase of NBA sports clothing and other merchandise. However, many unsuspecting fans could have been victims of purchasing counterfeit merchandise. HSI's preliminary numbers reflect that nearly 1,600 counterfeit items were seized June 7th and June 13th during their investigative efforts. Those items included, but were not limited to t-shirts, hats, jerseys, cell phone cases, cell phone pop sockets, event passes, and tickets. HSI San Francisco is committed to conducting intellectual property theft investigations that not only protect the companies who have trademark licensed products, but also the consumers who believe they are buying authentic products, says Ryan L. Spradlin, special agent in charge, HSI, Northern California. When fans speed their hard-earned money, spend their hard-earned money on tickets and merchandise, they deserve the real deal. They have a really long <laughs> press release here. You might have heard me talk about HSI before. They don't want to do immigration work. So like, we're special agents. We investigate. So they find random things to investigate. There's thousands of these agents. Why are they not put into ERO to deport people? I just don't get it. That's something that really, really needs to change. Really needs to change. Just really frustrates me, this stuff. Anyway, tomorrow we're going to have Jason Jones on. As always, send me your comments. Um, you know, I really appreciate it. One of our listeners now is helping me with the Minneapolis case. I told you guys all these criminal alien crimes that get covered up. I don't see the half of them. I don't see a fraction of them. So in your area, if you see stuff, um, our listener Vicky is our Minneapolis uh, director here. And this is truly a collaborative uh, opportunity. Email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. I can't always guarantee I'm going to respond, but I try and, you know, your stuff is really helpful. So if you see things like that, feel free to pass it on. Let's do this together. It takes a village. 
not to support a family and live your life, but to take back our country. That it does take a movement. No one person could do it alone. No one elected president, senator. It's got to be a movement. We're going to slowly try to create it, shame others into doing this. We're seeing some success, some bright signs today. But now it's time to go in for the kill on immigration, on other issues, healthcare. We're going to get back to those issues in the coming days. But until tomorrow, God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe at iTunes. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.